turn in your Bible, please, <clears throat> to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 16, and our verse for this morning is verse 9. Well, verses 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. We're glad to have the primaries and the juniors in this service this morning. God bless you. It's really a blessing to see you. They're working on some songs, and I hope in the near future they'll be able to sing here in the auditorium. We thank God for them and for our choir and for all those who have sung to us today. I know you're thankful for our Anchored Christian School team and the way they have represented our school. They've just lost one game. I think they have eight one. Is that correct? Eight and one. And uh, these trophies on the table here this morning are reflective of that position. We thank God for their coach and the men and those who drive and those who take care of all of that. Now for just a little while this morning, I want to speak on this subject. A great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for God's hand and direction in this hour today. May we be led by the Holy Spirit. We pray that every boy and girl Every man and woman will receive something that will be helpful all through the week. May the Holy Spirit touch folks and draw them to Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. I wish you would mark that verse in your Bible if it is not already marked. For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Paul himself had founded the Corinthian church. The record of that is in Acts chapter 18. But that church had become a carnal church. After Paul crossed the Aegean Sea and planted the gospel for the first time in Europe, he founded the Philippian church. That seems to have been Paul's joy church, a special assembly of believers. And just to read the four chapters of, of, of Philippians is to get your heart warmed and blessed 2,000 years after it was written. Now after Paul left Philippi, he went to Thessalonica and Berea and he went to Athens, the scene of the Parthenon and all those ancient Greek mytho mythological gods and goddesses. And then he went to Corinth. He spent quite a time in the city of Corinth. Probably Corinth was the most wicked city in Greece. Not only were there pagan gods and goddesses, and all of those had to do with immoral fertility. And just to read 
sections of secular history about what was going on in Corinth at that time, it's a marvel that anybody could get saved. And it's a greater marvel that there could even be founded a church in that city. But actually, Paul founded a church right where Satan's seat is. And that church began to grow and flourish. But the problem with it is, after Paul left and went on in the missionary enterprise, that church became a carnal church. A carnal church. Three kinds of people. There are natural people, those who have never been saved. Such were some of us. Before we were saved, we were of the, of the nature. We were natural. And we are, were of the fa our father, the devil. A person who is not saved is not a child of God. He is a child of Satan. That's the reason it's so important for everybody to get saved because we need to change foundations from self and Satan to Christ and heaven. That's the reason Jesus said you must be born again. And then there's a second kind of person, and that is a carnal Christian. Paul called them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, babes in Christ. He said, I wish I could have fed you with meat, but I had to feed you with milk. You were babes in Christ. And instead of growing, you became self-satisfied. You became carnal. And then there's a third kind of person. Paul speaks of that in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. That's the spiritual Christian. I hath not seen, neither hath it entered into the heart of man, the things that God hath prepared for them that love him, but he hath revealed it unto you by his Spirit. And there are people who have grown in the Lord and have become spiritual Christians. Three kinds of people. A lost man, natural, lost in his sins, doing that which comes naturally to the flesh. The carnal Christian, that is the person who's just been saved. He's a babe in Christ. He's never grown in the Lord. Sometimes he remains a babe or a carnal Christian all of his life. And then the third kind, the spiritual Christian, who has grown in the Lord and can discern spiritual things because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church and he says, you're a carnal church. You're carnal believers. You're saved, yet so as by fire. You're on your way to heaven, but there'll be no rewards. And in this book, if, if you could ever think of a problem that a church would have, the Corinthian church had that problem. They were divided over leadership. Some said, I'm of Cephas. Some said, I'm of Paul. Some said, I'm of Apollos. And there was another pious group that stood over there and said, well, I don't like any of them. I'm of Jesus. I just like, I'm a Jesus people. Paul said, you're all carnal. Divided over leadership like that, that's carnality. And then they were neglecting God's servants. There was immorality in the church. 
There were Christians taking other Christians to court and to law with each other. There was confusion about the principle of influence. Paul gave a new principle. He said, there may not be anything wrong with eating meat, but if eating meat offend my brother, I'll eat no meat while the world stands. There may not be any problem with what I'm doing. Maybe what I'm doing is perfectly all right. But if it is offensive to a Christian, to a fellow person, or if it should cause a lost person to stumble into hell, I'm going to change my way. I'll not do it anymore. I ever tell you how I quit playing cards? I haven't played cards since 1950, 49, since 1949. I don't know how many years that is. Long time. I used to be pretty good at it. But I tell you why I quit. I was witnessing to a man on a college campus. I really wanted to see that person saved. And I was, at night, we, a group of us got together and we'd just play cards. We were not gambling. I knew gambling was wrong. We were just playing cards. And that, that young man that I had been witnessing to passed by the house. We didn't have the curtains down or anything. We weren't trying to hide anything. We were just playing cards in there. He saw that. And I tried to witness to him later, and he was as cold as a cucumber. And then I heard by the grapevine that he had gone by the house and seen us down there gambling. <laughs> well, I wasn't gambling. I was playing cards. But I went to him, and I apologized to him. I never did win him to the Lord. But I got along with God, and I said, God, if you'll forgive me for that, I'll never play another game of cards the rest of my life. If eating meat offend my brother, I'll eat no meat while the world stands. The principle of influence. Oh, how God's people need to grow from carnality, which says, I'll do whatever I want to do. It doesn't make any difference. It's nobody else's business. To a point where we say, Lord, if what I'm doing is harmful or hurtful to somebody else, I ask you to forgive me and I'll not be involved in it. That church at Corinth was confused over the Lord's Supper. They were all mixed up about the Lord's Supper. If I went at everything they were mixed up with, we'd talk about that the rest of the day. Why they were mixed up about, uh, they were mixed up about the spiritual gifts. Uh, some were wanting to, major on talking in tongues and others were wanting to major on healings and so on and Paul had to deal with all of those things he said you're carnal what carnal majoring on gifts that's carnality that's what he says they were even confused about the resurrection and Paul wrote the whole 15th chapter of 1st Corinthians about the resurrection to that carnal church to straighten out some things about the resurrection. Last of all, he comes to chapter 16, and they were all mixed up about practical things. And he mentioned several practical things. Among them was what we studied in Sunday school this morning. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. God just, through Paul, set forth the principle 
in this particular context, it was related to an offering for the poor. But Paul was saying, there won't have to be any special offering for the poor. If everybody will do, what you know is the principle of stewardship. Upon the first day of the week, Sunday, let every one of you, every believer, lay by him in the storehouse in the church, God's church, as God has prospered in proportionate giving. And the reason was so you won't, we won't have to take a special offering. You see, they were confused about all this. So Paul says, I'm going to come to Corinth. I want to come and see you. I want to come and be with you a little while. But he said, I'm in Ephesus. And I think I'm going to remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. And then he says, the reason I want to do this is because there's an open door to me. There's an effectual open door. And there are many adversaries. Now he says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus because there's an open door here. Why does God give an open door? When does God give an open door? Matthew Henry says some very pointed things about this open door, and I want to just share a few of them with you. God gives his servant great success and a prospect for more. This is a great and effectual open door. In other words, Paul had a lot of success over in Ephesus. People were being saved. Churches were being founded. The work of God was growing. And he said, I have a great effectual door here. And then he says, and there are many adversaries. He doesn't say, but there are many adversaries. Isn't that interesting? Underscore that in your Bible. Whenever there's a great effectual door opened, there will be adversaries. Great success in the work of the, go of the gospel often creates enemies. When you're not doing anything, nobody criticizes you. When you're doing something, somebody will criticize you. The only way to not get criticized is to die and get in a casket. Have you ever heard of anybody going to the funeral home and saying, well, that old badger, that old codger, look at all the mean things he did. You don't do that. You go to the funeral home and you say, well, I remember some good things about him. You may have to scratch your head two or three times, but you remember some good things about him. But you see, as long as we're doing something, as long as we're active for Christ, as long as his church is marching, there are going to be some adversaries. As long as you are doing something, you're going to get some people upset with you. You get a job and you get ahead a little bit, and people start tearing you down. They'd be criticizing you. You have a beautiful home, and somebody will say, Yeah, look at that. So, what do they talk about you? You get ahead a little bit in life, you accomplish some things. And folks start tearing you down. The devil opposes those most who most heartily set themselves to destroy his kingdom of darkness. Now you think of that. I was interested in someone giving me a report of some article that was in the College Herald recently. And it was a, an attack on fundamentalists 
who were invading the campus for Christ. <laughs> Just get that sheet out and frame it. Say, thank you, Lord, that there are some people who care enough about Jesus to go over to Western and knock on some doors and they get criticized for it. Where is the criticism of those that are not doing anything? There's a great door and effectual open, but there, and there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries, therefore the apostle determines to stay. He says, I'm gonna stay right here in the city of Ephesus. I'm not gonna leave. Do you know that true courage is wedded by opposition? People don't run away because of opposition. Now, the, the, the cowardly do. Those who don't have any backbone might. God's people don't. The opposition is only animated by this. I, I, excuse me. The zeal to go forward is animated by this opposition. The more the opposition, the more the person's going to get up and go, gets up and goes. He's got a purpose in life. Adversaries and opposition do not break the spirit of faithful people of God, but rather kindle their zeal. Now you find somebody that's not very faithful, not very loyal, and they find a work going for God, and they go out and they hear, hear people grumble about it and mumble about it and so on. If they're not very loyal, not very faithful, they're not very involved themselves while they take it all in and they come back and say, look, some of them don't like us. We better change the way we're doing things so people will like us. But you find somebody that is out on the firing line with a torch and they're going forward to do a great work for God or they're doing a great work as a Christian in their business and there's opposition. They may smile a little bit. They may listen a little while, but they're going to go right on. That's what Paul was saying. He said, there's, a, there's an effectual door open. God is doing some things, and there are some adversaries right here. To labor in vain is heartless and discouraging. This dampens the spirit and breaks the heart. Opposition? No. But when the labor is in vain or you're alone in it, sometimes it can be a problem. It is not, it is, Matthew Henry said this, it is not the opposition of the enemy but the hardness of his hearers and the backsliding of professors that dampens and discourages a faithful minister and breaks his heart. You think of that. In this chapter, Paul speaks of the great door and effectual. And he says, I'm going to stay here. And then in this chapter, he sort of hints at what some of the adversaries might be. He says, uh, when I come to Corinth, I want to be sure that things are going right here. 
and he outlines some reasons for an effectual door and some reasons why the effectual door may not be there. And I think these four things are applicable to every one of our lives. It is applicable to the church. It is applicable to your family. It is applicable to you as an individual, as a Christian. Number one, in verses one and two, his focus is on sufficient funds. Sufficient funds. Did you know there's not anything in your family that will hurt you more than having problems over finances constantly? Just constantly. One financial crisis to another. Sometimes if a husband and wife are not in sweet spiritual unity and union, this will be a wedge that could drive between them and divide them. These are not easy days. If we compare today with the depression days, certainly we, this is an age of affluency. Almost everybody has some place to live, has enough food. Most everybody has some kind of car. Most everybody that I go to see has a television. It's amazing, people that don't even have enough to eat have color televisions. People that have needs and, and just don't have anything, they have a television. If I were you, I'd sell the television, I think. I believe I would. I don't have one. <laughs> so it's easy for me to say that. <clears throat> but you see, when there are financial struggles, whether it's in a nation, and in our nation we have that, whether it's in a family, whether it's in a church, whether it's in an individual's life, when there are not sufficient funds to get the work done, to keep the family together, to keep the food on the table, to keep the bills paid, that's an adversary. That's a problem. Now God gives an answer, and Paul was just giving an answer to that problem. He said, well, they, they, it was if, as if they'd say, what can we do about it? What shall we do about this matter? And Paul says, here's what you're to do. On the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered, that there be no gatherings when I come. And they say, wait a minute, Brother Paul. I hardly have enough to eat. What do you mean? Take what you have and give to God first. You don't mean that, yes. Do you remember the Old Testament story when there was a widow lady and her son, and there was a great famine, and they were about to die? And the prophet of God came, and he said, fix me something to eat. And the lady said, well, we, we, we just have a little tiny meal, and I'm fixing to get that ready for my son and myself, and we'll eat it and die. <clears throat> and the prophet of God said, wait a minute, you put God first, and give God his, and I guarantee you that you'll not starve to death. God will take care of you. She did it. And for the next three years, God took care of her. <laughs> and so Paul is saying, here's what you do about that kind of adversary. Put the Lord first. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you be honest with God and give to God his tithe and your offering. I think the same thing is true in the Lord's church. There would, be, there would not be financial embarrassment in the Lord's church if all of God's people would obey this instruction. Many adversaries, one of the adversaries, the lack of sufficient funds. 
A second adversary, I think, is spoken of in verses 10 and 11 and verse 15 to 18. Has to do with serious companionship in the gospel. Look at that. Now, Timoth now if Timothy come, see that he may be with you, and so on. Verse 15, I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, and that is the first fruits of Achaia, and so on. A little bit later, he mentions Apollos. He mentions Aquila and Priscilla. <clears throat> Paul had companions in the work. Listen, when you do not have serious companions, companionship in your life, there's a trouble, there's a problem. This serious companionship most often is a husband and wife team in the home. Wife, be a companion to your husband. Husband, be a companion to your wife. There needs to be a graciousness, a love fellowship in the home. A seriousness about this companionship. If it is not there, that in itself will become an adversary and will throw open the door to all kinds of ills and problems and difficulties. And a couple ought not to go into marriage unless they determine in advance that I'm going to take seriously this covenant vow for better or for worse. Sometimes it gets worse. But I'm going to stick anyway. I heard a, a song. You know all these popular songs that are on the radio. I heard one that made sense the other day. It was about this, ma this maybe this lady, uh, singing a love song to her husband. And she was saying, I'm so glad that you loved me when I wasn't lovable. I'm so glad you stood with me when it, I made it rough on you. And on and on and on. I thought that was so refreshing because most of the time you hear somebody cheating on somebody so they go off and cheat on somebody else and the marriage is all torn apart you don't have to tear your marriage apart because you disagree on some things or understand what I'm saying you don't have to tear your marriage apart because of cheating God never commanded a couple to divorce he gave an allowance for divorce but he didn't say you had to do it and one of the great adversaries of our day is the lack of serious companionship. Not only is that true in the family, but it's true in our, in our spiritual lives. Christian young people, make your best friends among Christian young people. Not among the world's group, but God's people. We need friends in Christ. One of the definitions of a church is a fellowship of believers where you can come and no matter what you've, what's been wrong, you can feel like I've got my family here and they'll understand. Have you ever gone out and you've done something that was wrong or you felt maybe you were accused of something wrong, maybe you didn't do it. Or maybe you did your less than your best. Maybe you didn't hit the ball or get the ball in the basket. Maybe you just made a, a, a foul and you had to go sit on the bench. You feel, you know how bad you feel. Nobody has to come up and say, well, what'd you do that for? See, you already know how you feel. Isn't it precious when you go home and mom or dad put their arm on your shoulder and say, well, I'm proud of you. Amen. See, you're accepted in the beloved. 
And Paul is saying one of the adversaries that we have is a failure to have fellowship and friendship, serious companionship. Christians need that. We need it in the Lord. I'm so pleased when I see God's people loving each other, going to see each other, inviting one another into their homes. It's a sad thing to me when some of our people have to fold their tents and they can no longer have their own homes and they have to go live in a nursing home. And so many times they're forgotten. We have a shepherding program in our church of deacons. And each deacon is responsible for a section of our membership to get to know them, to watch if they're missing, if they're not here, to go call them on the phone, to go to their homes. And then each one of the deacons has a list of shut-ins. And they go regularly every month to see these shut-ins. Shorty Edwards died this morning. He was on our list. Precious dear man that got saved late in life after his wife died. He was the man that measured the river. He was the man that went out on all kinds of errands on that wrecker for years and years and years. And after he got saved, he loved to come to church. Just a few weeks ago, he wanted to come to church with me and I asked if he could come and the doctor had felt that it wasn't wise for him to leave the place. But I'm thankful that our deacons went to see him. Ms. Lou Whitson went to be the Lord. I'm glad that our deacons went to see him, uh, see her, and our membership. You see, we need to love each other. Some of our folks are in the hospital. You need to go this afternoon and visit them. One of the adversaries is a lack of serious companionship. It's hard to go alone. We need the fellowship of others of God's people in the work of the church. We need people who will commit themselves to be in the choir 52 Sundays a year, all the time. When I was growing up, there was a lady named Teresa Eddington. Teresa Eddington sang in the choir. That's the only contact I ever had with her. I never knew that she was where she worked in Sunday school. Maybe she did or didn't, I don't know. But she would often, she, she just was there. I don't think she ever sang a solo, but she was always in the choir. And one day as a teenager, I just went up to her and I said, I, I, won't, I don't know why this impressed me. I said, I want to thank you. And she said, for what? I said, I want to thank you for always being in the choir every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. And she said, well, they called me Pete in those days. She said, Pete? I want to take you to dinner for saying that. She took me to the Blue Boar because I complimented her. Well, I meant that with all my heart. I wasn't trying to get a free meal. <laughs> but I want to tell you, that makes an impression. If you can sing, you ought to be in the choir. If you teach Sunday school, be there. We need comrades in the leadership who will hold hands, comb the woods for God, and do what God wants done. I'm thankful for our leadership, for our deacons, and for our teachers, and for our staff. I thank God for our faithful staff. So many times, they're just here, they're just always here at the work. What an adversary it is to not have sufficient 
friends in the work, companionship. Now there's a third thing, and that is the stance of loyalty and faithfulness of the people. He, meant, he mentions a series of injunctions here. He says, watch, stand fast, quit you like men, be strong, do all this work with love. And the obvious inference is, if you do not do it, this is a, an adversary. If you do not do it this way, it is an adversary. But if you do do it, what a compliment to the work of God. Watch. Stand fast. Quit you like men. Last of all, he says, I, I want to recommend to you a total sellout to Jesus Christ. Now, all of this... And he is listing some things that are adversaries, and he says to the Corinthian church, Corinthians at Ephesus, these are not adversaries, but at Corinth they are. What is the difference? The difference is a total sellout to Jesus Christ. He said here at Ephesus, they have learned to love Christ with all their heart and mind and soul and strength. And over there at Corinth, I love you, dear friends, but you are still babes in Christ. Carnality is the key of the day. There's no way to be happy in Jesus but to trust him and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now some have not trusted Jesus. You've never put your faith in him. Or maybe you say, preacher, I put my faith in him, but I've never made it public. I didn't know that it was necessary to make it public. Yes, in the economy of God, there are no secret disciples. God planned that everybody who gets saved should make it public and follow the Lord in baptism and take a stand for the Lord. But all of that comes after putting our trust in Jesus. And if you have not yet put your trust and faith in Christ, it would be a fakery to take a stand for Christ. But if you have taken a stand for Christ, if you have given your heart to Christ, then you are holding back on him if you do not go on and take the stand and follow him in baptism. So we need to trust him and then obey him. And in obeying him, there's great gain in obeying Christ, just doing what he says, living for him and honoring him and serving him. Let's bow together in prayer, please. Our Father, we thank you for this Bible study from God's Word today. <clears throat> we pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to every heart. And some who have never been saved may they come to Jesus. And others who are God's people take an open stand for Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. May we stand, please. Let's turn in our songbooks to number 242. Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come to thee. I'd like to ask you to not leave for a moment or two while we begin this invitation. If God has spoken to your heart, 
would you take a stand for him? First of all, if you're here and you have never been saved, you've never received Christ as your Savior, let me encourage you to give your heart to Christ. Take an open stand for him today. Come and confess him as your Lord. Come and follow him in baptism. If you're a member of a church, not Glendale, but you've moved to the city, or you live here and you feel like God wants you at Glendale, would you come today and say, I want to become part of this fellowship of believers? Do what God's Holy Spirit leads you to do. If there's anyone here who has heard God tug at your heart in another way, take, take your stand for him today. God help you to do it while we sing.